Thank you, Mark. So there's a lot there, and I'm flipping through my notes, seeing what may land today in this moment and what might be left to be continued for us, which is in some ways all of God's story as we look to it. So wetting the appetite and inviting the Spirit to um, allow to remain in our hearts what He would have for us and let everything else drift away. That's an often a prayer that I have approaching his text and approaching uh, as I present it. Scholars and historians have held widely different interpretations and applications in this passage, if you can believe it. And so I hesitate but will, as is my call, to invite um, my heart and voice to this text, but doing so humbly I think a mark of a good teacher is to leave you probably with more questions than answers, than clear ones at least, because that stirs your heart and your mind while offering uh, my opinions or interpretations uh, or in some ways and sometimes convictions. And I want to stay with some big themes today, which was my intention coming into this morning as well, uh, as opposed to getting into the weeds of some of the details here that could take a long time. There have been volumes written on a passage, this passage specifically, and the, the synoptic passages uh, with these themes of the coming days and potentially the, the end days, the last days. Uh, there's been a lot written about these. This is uh, biblical prophecy, uh, things being foretold of what will come. And what I want to share with you is my view uh, of all of biblical prophecy, that it's not simply what will happen or did happen, but what will always happen. This is God's story, and that requires that we understand both God's story, history, and the, therefore what that speaks to our world as we know it and as we see it. We can get into the weeds uh, pretty easily, and that, that passage from Mark chapter 4, way back in Mark chapter 4, came to mind with that um, idea of staying on the path versus into the weeds, the sower and the seeds, and Jesus said something that became a very recurring and is a recurring theme throughout the gospel of Mark that Mark picks up on. Jesus said, let, let they that have ears hear, those that have ears, let them hear those that have eyes to see, let them see. And that's often why he would speak in parables, uh, because for those that would have ears to hear and soft hearts to receive, the, the meanings could be plain, at least the, maybe the core meaning of a parable could be plain. But those that were resistant to his message, resistant to the, the kingdom of God, would not hear. And that becomes a recurring theme throughout the gospel. We've seen that. And then even some of the miraculous works that Jesus did, we see him healing the blind, opening their eyes, healing the deaf, opening up their ears. As, as that happens physically in a miraculous way, it's meant to be a sign pointing to what Jesus was intending to do, what God wants to do for all peoples, that they would have their eyes open and their ears open to see and to hear and to receive the message. But those that should have most quickly responded to the gospel message of Jesus the, the religious leaders, the, the Jewish scribes, the teachers of the law, they were the ones that were most resistant to it, had the hardest hearts and closed ears. And we've seen that theme continue throughout. Do we have, this is what Mark would want us to ask for any reader for, for all time, do we have ears to hear? 
Are my eyes open to the things of the kingdom? Do I have a, do I have a soft spiritual heart uh, to be stretched, to be challenged, to see things in, in new ways? Not in the ways of the world, but in the ways of the kingdom. Uh, we've called it and said it's the upside-down kingdom because the way that Jesus brings in the kingdom is antithetical to any other kingdom in the world. He does so through service, through love, and through sacrifice, giving of himself all. And that's not the way we see the world take authority and control and power by force. Throughout this chapter, Jesus exhorts his disciples not to be deceived, to be on guard, to stand firm, to be alert, awake, to watch, and to perceive. And so he calls us to that as well. The chapter opens uh, with, almost, with, with the disciples misunderstanding again, these that have been walking with Jesus most closely, right? It's their journey of faith also that we've seen uh, throughout the story, and we can find ourselves in that journey. That's the, that's the whole point. Those even closest to Jesus that witnessed his miracles still struggle to see with kingdom eyes and to truly perceive. And so one of them, as they're leaving the temple, says to Jesus, look at this incredible structure. Maybe it's the first time they've been that, been that close for, since its completion. Herod had completed uh, this massive temple. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world at the time. Some of the, the, the stones used for the Temple Mount as they, as they built, it was already on a rock outcropping in Jerusalem, but they built it up even further and then erected the temple upon it. Some of those stones uh, were up to 40 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 14 feet tall of a solid rock and moved into place, chiseled into place and moved into place, weighing well over a million pounds. And there were many of them. And some of those stones can still be seen today. And engineers marvel at that feat of how that was done. Well, it was done on slave labor. That was also done through an amazing engineering, uh, technological and modern advancement at the time that was unmatched. And what Jesus, when so, so therefore, you just start to picture a little bit of maybe the most secure, solid building and foundation in all of the world at this time. And Jesus says, not one of these stones will be left upon another. It was unfathomable, really, for the followers of Jesus, not only in, in its physical stature and strength, but also if, you're, if, if you were a Jew, this is God's house, right? This is his place, and, and it had been destroyed, so that at least had to have been in their mind that the, the previous temple had been destroyed hundreds of years earlier, but God left a remnant and it had it rebuilt. And now it looks like this. And whether or not, you, I mean, clear, clearly no one was a big fan of Herod at the time. He was an oppressive uh, ruler in the Roman Empire. But he nonetheless built the strength of their symbol to their God and they could marvel at it. The disciples marveled at it. And what Jesus was saying to them essentially is a, a powerful word to all. When you marvel at the work and the, and the advancement of the hands of men, what you can make, what you can build, you are not seen with kingdom eyes. For all of these things will be torn down. These are not the things that Jesus was impressed with. In fact, we know he just denounced what was happening at the temple, which was a, a religious system and structure that kept people at bay from drawing near to God. He had flipped the tables of those exchanging money and selling the, the offering animals, 
because it was oppressive to the poor and to the foreigner coming in. He flipped it. He ended that process. He said, no more. All can draw near to the presence of God. That's the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has come to be the presence of God into his world, not restricted in any way, not limited to a place or to a temple any longer. And Jesus cursed the fig tree. Remember at the beginning of this extended section, he cursed a fig tree for having no life on it, no fruit on it, and it was emblematic. He taught the disciples, this is this lifeless, rootless, fruitless tree represents what's happening in the temple. And he went into the temple and cursed it, denounced it, and ended that ministry. And so Jesus is saying the same thing here. Not one stone will be left on another. Everything will be thrown down. When, 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 when men say, look at what we have made, look at what we've accomplished, look at us, God is not impressed by that. It's the ancient story of the city of Babel, where they built the structure to reach to the heavens, to become like God's. Look at us, they said, and God, God ended that. He scattered that work. He's, Jesus is saying the same thing in that line here. Now, amazingly, Jesus' words would come true, and we know that by history. A few decades later, in AD 70, the Roman Empire would come and utterly ravish the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. His words came true, even though at this moment they are unfathomable. At the time of Mark's writing of this gospel, it hasn't happened. And so it's pretty amazing that Mark joins in and reaffirms even Jesus' words, likely himself and, and the rest of the Jews saying, I can't imagine this would happen. Maybe at, maybe at some far distant day, but within their very lifetime, they would see Jesus' words come true. And the disciples had asked him, when will this happen? What will be the signs? And that is in large part what Jesus is responding to in chapter 13. These are the signs of the destruction of this building, of that time. But he is also vague enough in the way that he speaks that many throughout history have said, is that fully what he was referring to? Or does he have greater meaning in mind? And I would join with those who say, this is biblical prophecy. This is forth-telling of what not just will happen, but what will always happen. And I believe that that should shape how we view and interact with all of the prophecy that, are in, that is in Scripture. Because God is, is outside of a, a single storyline. He is governing all things. So if you read through the Hebrew scriptures and some of the, the most famous prophecies of all given through the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, many of the things that they foretold of, we can look back and in, in, in history and many scholars would agree, these things took place. For example, the, the destruction of Jerusalem the first time, the destruction of the walls, the city, the temple, the exile by the nation of Assyria, and then later Babylon, the remnant being remained and to come back and to rebuild. All these things that had been foretold, but there's a vagueness enough that many would wonder, is that truly the fulfillment? And this is the way I think we rightly receive all of biblical prophecy. So that in the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah, in that generation, and maybe the subsequent generation, they would say, See, it's been fulfilled. God's word through these prophets, which we largely denounced and rejected, has come to pass. And yet, when you fast forward those hundreds of years to the time of Jesus, and then the gospel writers, Paul himself, the apostle Paul, they picked up on many of those 
ancient prophecies and applied them to Jesus' time, to Jesus being the fulfillment. Jesus himself did this, so they took that cue from Jesus. One of the first things he did was announce himself by reading from the prophet Isaiah and say, here I am, this is me. Some at that time were saying, all has been fulfilled that Isaiah had written. The kings have come, have renewed, have restored. They have been our messiahs. While others were saying the messiah is yet to come. These prophecies haven't been fully revealed. So that in the time of Jesus, more of his people could say, see, this is what Isaiah truly meant. This is what Jeremiah truly meant. While we saw it in part fulfilled hundreds of years ago, it is now being more greatly fulfilled in Christ. And others would say, but there's so much still yet to be accomplished, yet to be fulfilled. A number of these prophecies don't seem to fit tightly. I wonder when their ultimate fulfillment will come in that next day of the Lord and that next returning. And I think this is the right way to approach all of biblical prophecy because God governs the whole story in, in, in masterful beauty so that it's not just what happens or what will happen, but what always happens. This is God's word describing his world and the promises that he is making to redeem it, to renew it, to restore it, and yet in the midst, there will be conflict. There will be pain. There will be loss. There will be turmoil. There will be fighting for the new to come, for new life to come. One of the images Jesus uses, it will be like the beginning of birth pains. It's laborious. It's painful. And yet endure because new life is coming. This is what always happens and if we are to rightly interpret biblical prophecy, we rightly hold it more faithfully, openly, without pressing it into precision as, here it is, this is exactly how it's been fulfilled, or this is exactly when it will take place. Many scholars, theologians, or hacks have tried to do that over the years to their folly. It will continue to happen. This is a multi-layered interpretation. I think it is the most faithful. Jesus hints at this in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Oh, we can get caught up in the wrong half of that statement. Heaven and earth will pass away. It's going to be swept away. That's not what Jesus is emphasizing. He's using an extreme. All things can pass away. Now, we believe he's making all things new, but we can wrongly, and some have said, therefore, everything in this world or this earth is going to be destroyed, and then you can make wrong applications or conclusions. Therefore, what do we really need to worry about climate change or stewarding the earth? It's all going to burn. God's going to make all things new. And see, we can follow this line of thinking to false applications. Jesus was using an extreme. Everything that you know of can pass away. Even this temple, which you would say, this cannot be destroyed. It's for, it's, it'll stand forever. And yet in a few short dec decades would be ravished. Jesus is using the extreme to say, even heaven and earth can pass away. What will never change is my word. God's word is his character. God's word is his promise. This is what will remain. Ground yourself on this. When all else is shaken, ground yourself on God's constancy, on his promise, on his word. When things are not accomplished in your timing, when things are not understood, when things don't fit, when things don't seem right, my word will not pass away. 
My word will stand forever. That's what he's calling his disciples, his followers to, to that kind of trust and faithfulness. We're taught to pray, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're taught to pray for his kingdom to come now, here. That's how he teaches us. More and more, Lord, until that future day when these things truly come to pass in only the way that God sees and knows, until that day, our focus isn't on that day. It's alertness to this day. It's alertness to this time. It's praying for his kingdom to come now, here, in this place, leaving that future day in his hands. And so when Jesus goes through this list of many things, of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, such things must happen. You could probably drop into any point in the timeline of history in the last 2,000 years since Jesus said those words and say, look, it must be being fulfilled. We can rightly drop into this time, like so many others. These must be last days. Look at the turmoil and the pain in our world. Jesus' words are being fulfilled because, again, I declare it's not just what did happen or will happen. It's what always happens in the brokenness of this world. Jesus' words are pretty specific in many ways. And and in that devastating day or days of AD 70, when Rome invaded and ravished the city, many of those things would have been easily pointed to as being fulfilled. How terrible it was, how devastating it was. But the vagueness to some is enough to make the followers thereafter, and even us today say, was it truly fulfilled in that time? Or is he speaking of something greater and something more? This is biblical prophecy. Many will employ deception. See if any of this might apply to our current times. Many will seek divisiveness and discord, all the while claiming their own power, authority, and wisdom, seeking to rule and to reign. There will be fighting and conflicts and wars and rumors that make us wonder what to truly believe. Nation will be opposed to nation. The powerful will try to dominate and oppress the weak. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. There will be pandemics and food shortages and gas hikes and inflation and supply chain problems and no baby formula. Woe to nursing mothers. We can drop into just about any point in human history and with alertness and eyes to say, I see God. I see your words are true. And rather than getting swept into the weeds of the exact fulfillment of these words, when and where, that's not what we're called to. We're called to a spiritual alertness that agrees with God's declaration to this broken world, laments over it. And says, I see it, and I see those in greater distress than even me. Those representing the oppressed, the marginalized, the refugees. The pregnant mothers, the nursing mothers. How devastating it is. My heart joins with the heart of God in this. I'm alert to it. I'm awake to it. I see it, God. I don't want to see it. I wish I could go on living with an isolation to see the pain and the hurt around me, but it is the reality. This is the macro interpretation and application of biblical prophecy, understanding not just what did happen, 
will happen, but what always happens. Understanding the story of God and his world, a currently broken and fallen world where evil and sin still reigns for this time. And we lament and we grieve and hope. Because Jesus has promised to return he shifts here, and he does kind of shift back and forth from what most scholars would say, well, he's speaking to the destruction of this temple. He is answering that question after all. When will this happen? What will be the signs? He, he does engage that conversation, but then he shifts in the way, instead of saying to you, you will see. He's speaking to the disciples. This generation, he says, he shifts in a way that now, sh- now makes it broader. When these greater things happen, on that day, the day of the Lord, And he speaks to things that are beyond, maybe they're allegory or metaphor or hyperbole, but he speaks to things that are beyond what could have happened in a moment, in a locale, in a city in the Middle East. The sun will not shine, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall. Like He speaks in a much grander way, but he shifts then back and forth between the two, making us then pause and wonder, what is the fuller story being proclaimed? He says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, we can emphasize the wrong part of this. Theologically speaking, how could Jesus not know that day? Was he not God? Instead of the emphasis being upon who knows about all things, our Father God. He knows all things. The Father knows. God knows. That's the emphasis of that day of those times. Until then, be on guard, be alert, be awake to present things. That time will come. Let us not get lost in the weeds. That's for next week. You wanna get lost in the weeds, come on back. I've got notes and notes. It's a very fascinating, intriguing passage for Bible nerds. So I will try to restrain myself to still some of the major themes. God's sovereignty. God's knowing, God's promises, our invitation to trust him, our invitation to see with his eyes, to respond with his heart, not to trust the wisdom of the world or the work of our hands, but to wait upon him and to keep watch with him. And let me end with this. When Jesus said, When the master comes, he shifts to a little mini parable. When the master comes, let him find you alert, awake, watching, not asleep. Even these words are prophetic to his very own disciples and prophetic in the sense, therefore, to us. In the very next chapter, this is partially fulfilled. Do you remember what happens right before Jesus is arrested? He's in the garden after the Passover meal. This this will be Mark 14, so I won't belabor it. But he invites Peter, James, and John to come with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he say to them? Stay here and keep watch. This is Mark 14, 34. He says, my soul's overwhelmed with sorrow. I'm going to go over here and pray. You stay here and keep watch and pray with me. You know how the story turns out? He returns to the disciples. This is Mark 14, 37. And finds them sleeping. I don't know how long he was gone, but in just a few moments, they're asleep. And it's late at night, and there's all the reasons, all the excuses. And it doesn't just happen once. He says again, stay alert, watch and pray, 
The spirit is willing, the body is weak, that famous line. So once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping. And they did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, third repetitions in scripture are very important. Emphasizing the point, he says, are you still sleeping? Enough, the hour has come. What did he say here in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 36? If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. So now this, this, he, Jesus broadens it from just his immediate disciples. To all, keep watch, be alert, be awake. And that's the invitation for us. We enter into the story often through the disciples. That's the right way to enter it. Those that are saying, I, I want to follow Jesus, or I feel he's calling me. I'm on, I'm on the journey of faith somewhere, and, and I'm coming to know him. I'm coming to believe. We're humble when we see the same thing of us. Both our misunderstandings, misinterpretations, our distractions by the grandeur of things, our wonder at the signs of the things of the world coming back to Jesus. Look, look, Jesus, look. And him surprising us once again with the things that he's truly attuned to, truly attentive of, the things that he holds of highest values. And then we come and find ourselves often sleeping, closed to the ways of his work in the world. Whether blinded or hard-hearted or deaf to his word or simply tired, weary, asleep, in a malaise, with the things of the kingdom that Jesus invites us to. Stay here, keep watch, is his call to us. I've put you here for now, at this time, in this place. Keep watch here. Stay alert. Stay alert to the ways of the kingdom, to the work that I'm inviting you to do. Rely on the Holy Spirit to give you the words you need, to give you the strength that you need, because the world is against, the world is oppressive, the world will resist. This will not be easy. Stay alert. Stay awake, keep watch. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. For some reason, he's invited us to be his representatives into this world, to do the things that he did, to bring his kingdom while praying, God, your kingdom come, but to be ushers of his kingdom, to be light into the darkness, to be salt into the earth, to see that those that are hurting and oppressed, abused and marginalized, the poor, the outcast, and to seek to be present with the Spirit with them, to serve where we can, to invite God to heal, all the while bringing our lamenting heart, joining in with God's heart to the pain that we see. Keep alert. Be alert. Be vigilant. God is present. God is near. God has made his promises, and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises, and we thank you that you alone know, and that's where we must ultimately learn to trust you, and yet you invite us to see, to know more, to perceive, and to respond. Help us be faithful to that. Keep us alert. Speak to each one of us. Apply that. Help us apply that for what that means to our current context, our current place, where we live, in our neighborhoods, with our families, 
where we learn, where we grow, where we're stretched, where we're in community, where we play and enjoy so many good things in this community. Wherever you send us, the fields you place us, let us be responsive to your spirit already at work with spiritual eyes. Open our eyes, God. Give us your heart, knowing you're inviting us not to do all things, but to do small things and collectively to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, Lord, our sins when we get distracted by lovely or beautiful things in this world that are not meant to take our attention away fully from you, but to respond to you, the giver. Forgive us, God. Teach us to forgive one another who sin against us that we might again receive your grace and extend it. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today and in the days to come. We commit all these things for your glory and our joy. Amen.